Well, hello everybody and welcome back. This is our daily devotional for Monday, September 11th, 2023. Wow. As I'm saying this, it's it's been real to me, right, that, that today is September 11th, but actually saying it um, in this format is the first that I've said it. It's hard to believe that this many years have passed. This is not what the devotional is on. Um, and if you are not in our country, and I know that several people, uh, lots of folks watch this that are not uh, United States citizens, or maybe you are and you're just not here. But I wonder what the perception around the world is, if the world even knows anything significant about 9-11 like we do in the United States. But I wonder if you remember where you were um, when you started hearing crazy things about cr- planes crashing into buildings and that sort of thing. It's, it really is hard to believe. It's been, wow, 22 years since September 11th, 2001. Here it is, 2023. I do not know where the time went, nor do I know where a lot of the patriotism went either. Boy, we were a united nation for a while there, weren't we? The country was really united together. And then it it seems like uh, something is revealed in all of this. And again, this is not what the devotional is about, but it, it seems to me that patriotism is fleeting, right? That that love for countries is fleeting. However, when a country loves the Lord, that's when it's really united. And uh, very sadly, our nation seems to have turned its back again and again and again on the Lord. And um, he has been gracious and he has been merciful, but do we ever need him? I think it's days like today, the 4th of July, other days like this, that really ought to make that need for the Lord um, even more poignant, right? And also, as Christians, it ought to prompt us to pray, pray for our nation. It ought to prompt us to share the gospel because people need the Lord, right? Now, uh, again, uh, I think it's just the fact that it's 9-11 that, it, it, that, that sprang to mind here at the last second. Forgive my indulgence, but nevertheless, again, let me welcome you to our daily devotional. I am so happy to be here with you, and I am so grateful for your regular participation in this. Um, if you're joining us for the first time, realize that you picked a good time to come back. We only came back last week, and last week we focused on how to read God's Word. But where we're picking up today is where we left off in the book of Acts, and that is in Acts chapter 9. But before we go any further... Let me open us in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this time that lies ahead, and we pray for your blessings in it. Let us be ever mindful of your gracious mercy. Let us remember how you work and the power of the gospel, um, that as your word says, you're able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. And you show us these things in, in all sorts of pictures and glimpses throughout your word. And certainly we come to one of those today. So please let us be mindful. Let us have understanding. And as it is 9-11, as we remember those who lost their lives, as we remember the wars that would that would follow as we remember just how tumultuous a time it is in our nation's history, we pray that you would intervene, 
that once again, we would be one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. For right now, we may be one nation, but we act like many. And certainly, though we are under you, so many refuse to recognize that. So please work in our midst and work through us if you see fit. Let us be ready for that calling. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are in Acts chapter 9, and we're going to pick up where we left off. The only introduction that I will give to this is where we're picking up in the book of Acts. There's some turning points in the book of Acts, right? You have Acts in the very beginning, and you have Jesus ascending back into heaven. Acts chapter 2, you have Pentecost major turning point where that's really the launching of the church when Peter preaches his great sermon at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit prior to that falls on the disciples, on the apostles. They speak mightily. And then from there till chapter eight, you just have the story of the church. The book of Acts, if you've never been with us, I'd encourage you to go back and watch it. But the book of Acts itself, you say, well, that's a weird book, a weird name for a book. It's called Acts because it is the Acts of the Apostles, and some even say the Acts of the early church. In many ways, Acts like is like the genesis of the New Testament. It shows us the origin of who we are. So many things are established that, that we've gotten to already in these first nine chapters, or nine and a half, I should say, and then so many things are yet to be revealed about who we are and why we do what we do, and, and especially as it relates to Presbyterians, why we call ourselves Presbyterians. We're going to get to that in good time. But I mentioned some turning points in the book of Acts. Chapter 9 is a major turning point in the book of Acts because it's in chapter 9 that we meet a fella, well, that we catch back up with a fella called Saul, and he was from Tarsus. And we find this conversion when Saul is on the road to Damascus to go and persecute Christians. Um, the best way I can describe Saul is that he's like ISIS, right? He is the terror in the night. He's there to kill. He is there to arrest Jews that had converted to Christianity. He wants to take them back, throw them into prison, that sort of thing. And on the road to Damascus, Jesus himself stopped Saul. And not only did Jesus stop Saul, Jesus claimed Saul for his own. He didn't give Saul any options. You know, I don't even mean to make fun here, but um, when, when Saul encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus, well, Acts chapter 9, verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, Jesus reveals something there that when you persecute the church, it's no different than persecuting him himself. Because after all, he is the head of the church. He is the one that promised to build his church. Verse 5, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. You know, it's interesting there. On the road to Damascus, uh, there isn't, you know, soft keyboard music in the background. You don't see Jesus after the, the bright light flashes. You don't say, all right. I want everybody to, to, to bow their heads and close their eyes. And if anybody feels led to trust in the Lord, I just want you to put your hand up. And you don't hear him saying, I, I see one. I, I see another. No, y'all. He claims Saul for his own. 
And that experience would form Saul's theology of what salvation really is. And I talked about this yesterday morning in the sermon, right? That, that we are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from you. It's not from me. Faith is the gift of God. And it gives us this so that we may be saved. Um, Spurgeon, I think, is the one that said it. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary in the first place. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our salvation. And also, as I read yesterday in Philippians 2, 3, I don't have it in front of me. I think it's verse 3. But that famous verse, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion right? Until the day of Jesus Christ. And so you have this with Saul, where Saul is converted. Saul is claimed for Jesus's own. And then he goes and he runs into Barnabas. And then we find out towards the the middle of chapter nine that, that Saul, after having his sight restored, he goes about Damascus. He's preaching the gospel boldly. And that is where we leave things off where he's at Damascus, but we know that he's going to Jerusalem. And where we pick up today is when Saul, Saul, the one, you remember when Stephen was martyred for the faith, when he was murdered, Stephen, one of the first deacons, was murdered for preaching Jesus Christ, right? Saul was the toady that held the cloaks of the ones who murdered him. Saul is the one who went and asked permission to go and arrest Christians. That's Saul. The Saul that everybody is terrified from, where we come to today, he comes back to Jerusalem. And what do we find? Acts chapter 9, verse 26 is where we pick up. It's exactly where we left off. It's where we're picking up today. Verse 26 says, when he came to Jerusalem, talking about Saul, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. Now, Pause for a moment there. A dynamic is revealed here, and it ain't hard to understand. I mean, we we get what's going on here. Saul shows up in Jerusalem, and it's the collective, yeah, right. Okay, Saul, sure, you're a follower of Jesus now. And every time you're saying, hey, can I get an amen? Which, yeah, I'm taking some liberty here. I doubt that when Saul was teaching in Jerusalem, he said, can I get an amen? And then, you know, but their mindset would have been, yeah. And if I say amen, then he's going to jot my name down and I'm going to get black bagged in the middle of the night and I'm going to end up in jail, right? They didn't believe it. It was too good to be true that Saul would be converted. You know, and, and think about the most least likely person you can imagine to be converted to Christianity. I wonder who it is. You know, it's fascinating um, when you have conversations with people. And I love, I love people, right? I'm a people person, baby, right? I, I love talking to people. And if I asked this question to people, it would be fascinating, especially in this current political climate, uh, current political climate, excuse me, I can't talk. Um, some would say fill in the blank is the most le- like, least likely person to come to know the Lord. And it might be a politician that's considered on the far left, right? And then some would say, oh, well, Trump's the least likely to be. You know, it, it, we can spit out these names all day long. You could think of famous scientists, right? Atheists, those kind of people. And you would say, oh, well, you know, those people would never convert, right? Uh, Muslim clerics, right? You could go on and on a few years ago. While he was living, um, if you ask, people probably would say, well, the least likely person to convert to Christianity is probably Osama bin Laden, right? 
I don't care who you come up with as far as the least likely person to convert to Christianity. I challenge you to find someone more unlikely than Saul of Tarsus. I mean, I challenge you because he is the most unlikely convert, perhaps in the history of converts. Um, well, I say that except for one person, except for me, maybe two people, except for you, if you trust Jesus. Because here's the thing, y'all, uh, on surface level, you can understand why they responded to Saul as they did, because they might have thought it was a trick, that it wasn't really genuine. It doesn't really matter. But the reality is, it took no less grace or no more grace to save Saul of Tarsus than it did to, ta to save you, than it did to save me. Y'all, a sinner's a sinner is a sinner. Take all the different metaphors that you see throughout Scripture for someone that doesn't know the Lord. A fool, right? A fool is a fool. Um, someone who is blind. You, you really want to have a contest over varying degrees of blindness, right? Um, here's the ultimate one. As for you, go to Romans. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions. You're going to have a contest over who's more dead than somebody else? Or are you going to get out a stick to poke them? To say, oh, well, this guy's really, really dead. No, without Jesus, we're all the same, y'all. I'm not saying that the things that we do may not be more heinous than the next person, but a person without Jesus is no different than any other person without Jesus. That's the power of salvation. That's the beauty of the gospel. And Saul, again, you could have asked anybody. He was the most unlikely individual to convert, and yet he did. And this is not a testimony to Saul. Just like my salvation isn't a testimony about me, your salvation isn't a testimony about you, nor is it a testimony to your parents or anybody else. We are saved by Christ alone. And what a beautiful thing it is that Saul of Tarsus, the most unlikely, was indeed saved. Well, nevertheless, they won't accept him. Verse 27, but... But thankfully, verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He then told them how Saul on his journey, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. All right, we learn something here. In a world full of just regular people, be a Barnabas. Yeah, I joke about this. You know what Barnabas is called? Barnabas is called the encourager. His name means the son of encouragement. But Barnabas is referred to as the encourager on more than one occasion. I joke around with people about golf, right? I love to go play golf almost as much as I love going to drive the golf cart. But y'all, yeah, some people take golf so seriously. I, I call myself the Barnabas of golf because when I play, I encourage everybody else about their skill level because I'm hot garbage when it comes to golf. But really and truly, be a Barnabas. Be someone that encourages other people. Be someone that sticks up for other people. 
Because in this wonderful story of conversion where the Lord changes the most least likely person on earth, it takes a Barnabas coming along to vouch for him. It takes a Barnabas coming along to say, hey, look, guys, no, he's genuine. It takes a Barnabas to come along and say, he's with me. And upon doing this, you see that a difference is made. Again, Saul stayed in, stayed with them, with the apostles. He moved about freely in Jerusalem. He spoke in the name of the Lord. And then we learn something else interesting here, right? Not only do we learn that the Lord can change anybody, Saul is the example. Not only do we learn the importance of encouragement and coming alongside each other through Barnabas, we learn what happens when somebody starts really doing what the Lord wants them to do. We learn what happens when somebody gets transformed by the Lord. We learn what happens when somebody starts speaking the truth. He talked and debated. This is verse 29. He, Saul, talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. Boy, I tell you what, how the tables turn. This is Saul, who if you read the start of chapter 9, Verse one, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Fascinating that by the time you get to verse 29, the murderous threats are no longer coming from him about the disciples. The murderous threats are coming against him. Something valuable is pointed out here. Y'all, our messages, our hobby horses, our things, who are we? Right, Even the greatest of us, even the ones that come up with the greatest words, they end up getting butchered and maybe they end up in a history book or in a literature book or something like that. And then it ends up being attributed to Abraham Lincoln or somebody else. And what are our words? They come, they go, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but it's the word of the Lord that stands forever. And furthermore, it's when we start telling the truth about the Lord that the world snaps to, snaps to attention. The world notices the Grecian Jews that are being referred to here. You might say, well, what's the difference between a Grecian Jew and a regular Jew? It's very simple. Remember uh, the great diaspora, the dispersion of Jews. The Grecian Jews were those that had learned to live in the Greco-Roman world, right? They're old, old school Jews. And that's who Paul is engaging, or excuse me, he's still being called Saul here. He's engaging them with the truth and they do not pass go. They do not collect $200. They do the same thing with Saul that they did with Jesus. As soon as they hear it, they want him dead and they try to kill him. We don't know what that looks like. All it says is, but they tried to kill him. Does this mean they tried to stone him? They tried to arrest him, throw him off the side of a cliff? I don't know, but we know that Saul is speaking the truth and that the world rejects it. But y'all, that doesn't mean that the truth stops. No, 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 not at all. Quite the contrary. It just means that they had to pivot. So verse 30, when the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Very practically, they didn't want him killed. Verse 31, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. 
The final thing I will point out to you from this little portion of scripture, we, we've talked about all sorts of things, how God can change the unchangeable. We've talked about the importance of encouragement and being a Barnabas. We've talked about speaking the truth and how the world reacts to it. But y'all, let us not miss this little tidbit of a line right at the end of, of this section, at least the end of verse 31. The church grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Despite its growth, the church never stopped trusting. When you put all of these things together, you see something amazing. Again, the book of Acts is full of transitions. This is one of them in terms of the development of the church. And these hallmarks of the church are the necessary things that result in a growing church. What you see is people coming to know the Lord in a growing church. What you see is encouragement in a growing church. What you see is the truth being preached in a growing church. What you see is opposition to the truth being preached in a growing church. And what you must see is the church living in the fear of the Lord remembering the source of everything that's happened, remembering to trust, remembering to love, remembering to hope. The fear of the Lord is that reverential awe that the church remembered why it was there, how it had grown. My goodness, y'all think about what they had seen the Lord do, that he took the one that was on the war path. Again, Chapter 9, verse 1, the one that was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. The Lord took him and claimed him for his own and turned him so that he too would proclaim the riches of the gospel. And the Lord blessed the church through the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that was the encourager in this. Y'all, the reason this little transition is so important is because it sets up the rest of the book of Acts, yes? But at the same time, it points us to who we should be, to what we should do. As we think about America this, this September 11th, looking back, thinking back over the decades at this point, and that's hard to say, but thinking back over these things, if we are going to get on the right track, this is how we get on the right track. Nothing else. Because this is the stuff of lasting newness. This is the stuff of redemption. Now, as we close, because I've gone way over, as we close, what are you praying for? What are you trusting in? What are you looking to? To whom are you looking for salvation, for redemption, for change, for hope? Make sure it is the Lord. And again, don't miss your calling here. If you don't know Jesus, your calling is to come to know him as Saul did. If you do know Jesus, your calling is to be like Barnabas, to encourage each other, to lift one another up. Your calling is to be like Saul, to engage the world, just like he engaged the Grecian Jews. Don't be surprised if they hate you for it, but in engaging them, speak the truth and the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we thank you so much that we are back together in your word in the book of Acts. I pray even now that you would bless today's time, that it would go forth in your will, and that you would bless our times ahead as we seek understanding from your word. Let us not miss who you have called us to be. And again, on this rather poignant day, this day of memory, let us commit anew to pray for our nation. Would you intervene? We know you've been so merciful, but would you work change through the gospel of Jesus Christ? And would you use us? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, I'd like to thank you for being a part of this time. Lord willing, we'll be back tomorrow morning. I, I say 7 a.m., but the truth is, is that these things are usually on there by 6 a.m. So whenever you find this, whether it's afternoon or morning or evening, or maybe you're watching this at 5 a.m. and you'll watch the next one. I, I don't know. That's your business. I'm just glad we have this time, and I appreciate you being here. Until we meet again, have a happy Monday or whatever day it is. Take care.